Hey, everyone. Good morning again. My name is George Davis, and thank you for joining us for this online service of the Hershey Free Church. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been talking about bridge building and building bridges relationally in our spheres of influence, particularly in this season where we're dealing with COVID, physical isolation, we're dealing with what feels like cultural polarization and division. We really want to be people who are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And as people rooted in God's grace, we want to invest in our relationships in, in a way that reflect the message of Christ. But as we've been talking about bridge building, there really is a problem we must acknowledge, and that is this. We have to acknowledge that right now there are certain issues, certain factors in our culture that are dividing us, that make building bridges, building relationships more difficult, things that are separating us. So this morning, we are starting a new series entitled Bridging the Divide. This is a four-week series where we're going to talk about some of these factors, some of these issues. Next week, we're going to talk about the importance of unity and, and how to achieve it, even when we're engaging culture differently. We're also going to talk about the issue of race, which has been a very divisive topic this year. And then the last message, we're going to talk about the uh, gaps between generations and how we can bridge that divide. But this morning, as we start this series, we're going to talk about politics. Now, I don't need to remind you, we have an election coming up this week. Maybe like me, you've already voted, and I don't need to remind you of how much tension has built up during this election cycle. In fact, a poll released this week said that 70% of us are feeling deeply stressed because of this election. I think for some, we're, we're just frustrated. Maybe you're, just, you're tired of talking about this. As one of my friends said this week, I just want this to be done. I want it to be over. Some of you are frustrated because you feel like we need to be talking about it more, and we haven't. For some, you are frustrated because uh, this has introduced strain in your relationships. For some of you in your families, this has become a source of division. Maybe you can put it this way. This, this election has been, right, it's been the unspoken elephant or the unspoken donkey in the room at all times, and, and that's been very painful. And finally, I think for some, you don't realize it, but you have been a source of frustration. You have been a source of frustration in, in the lives of other people, through things you've said, through the ways in which you've engaged people on social media. You don't realize it, but for some of you, you've been a source of hurt and division in the lives of others. And frankly, you need to recognize this. You need to confess this, and, and you need to apologize to some people. So... In the midst of this season, in the midst of this tension and frustration, how do, we, how do we as followers of Jesus engage issues of politics well? And likewise, how do we engage those who disagree with us, particularly people within the church? And wrestling with these questions, I think a helpful place to start is a scene in the life of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 22. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me there to Matthew chapter 22. As you're turning there, I want to mention a couple of resources that I think can be helpful. I'm going to go through a lot of material this morning, so I want you to buckle up. But if you want to read further and think further, I want to recommend a couple of resources to you. First of all is a resource prepared by the National Association of Evangelicals. This is an organization, an umbrella organization, really, of 40 Bible-believing denominations, including our own. 
And the National Association of Evangelicals has, has produced a, a 30-page document called For the Health of the Nation. And it talks about civic responsibility and it works us through kind of different issues and how we need to embrace them and engage them from a Christian perspective. Uh, you'll find this in the sermon notes at hfcinfo.com. You've got a PDF link so you can download that. And I would encourage you to read that. Uh, two books I'm going to mention as well. One is a book by David Platt, pastor and author, that has come out quite recently, just a couple of weeks ago. The book is entitled Before You Vote, Seven Questions Every Christian Should Ask. And once again, it's a helpful book in kind of working through the process of voting and how we think politically as Christians. If you want to think more deeply, really, about the issues of faith and how faith intersects with politics, a book that I would recommend is by Jonathan Lehman entitled How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. Once again, you'll find reference to these books in the sermon notes, so I encourage you to take advantage of that. So after mentioning those resources, let's now come to Matthew chapter 22. And let's look at this scene in the life of Jesus that I think can help us think through politics as well as how we engage one another when we think differently. Here's the scene. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the the tax. And so they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, in in looking at this scene in the life of Jesus, let me make a couple of of brief introductory comments. First, this scene takes place within a series of scenes where people are coming to Jesus in order to trap him. And Matthew tells us specifically that's what's going on here, right? These people are coming, they're asking a question, but their goal is to trap Jesus. Secondly, you need to understand this. This wasn't simply a, a question about tax policy. This was a question about one of the most polarizing political issues in Jesus' culture. How do we respond to the Roman Empire? On the one side, there were those who argued, well, we can't be involved in Rome. We need to avoid them as much as possible. We need to avoid the Roman system wherever we can. And those included people like the Pharisees. On the other side, there were people who said, no, we need to work within the Roman system. That's where the power is. We need to be a part of it. And that included people like the Herodians. This was the great political divide of Jesus' day. Now, when they ask about paying this tax, they are specifically talking about the imperial poll tax. And in, in reality, it wasn't a lot of money. It was one denarius. It was one day's wages, basically. But it was controversial, not because of the amount, but it was controversial because of what it represented. You see, this tax just represented acknowledgement of Roman authority. In fact, when it had been instituted uh, 25 years earlier, there had actually been a riot uh, led by a guy named Judas the Galilean, and people died arguing about this tax. 
So now the trap has been set. Jesus, which side are you on? Which side of the cultural divide? Are you red? Are you blue? And of course, in typical Jesus fashion, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. Instead, what does he say? He says, give me a coin. And it would have been a coin that looked like that. And he said, okay, whose image? Well, it's the image of Caesar. And then he right utters those memorable words, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. Now, in unpacking what Jesus is doing here, because this is a brilliant response, in unpacking what Jesus is saying here, I think we need to understand that Jesus warns us against two political dangers. He warns us against two dangers. First of all, I think he warns us against political complacency. Right? To those who said, well, we just need to avoid the system because it's corrupt. No, Jesus says, no, you need to render to Caesar what is his. And I think this has implications for us as well. You know, we can say politics is messy. It's always disappointing. Just avoid it. Yet the truth is, we can't. Foundationally, politics is about how we relate to one another and how we structure society. And and all of us are involved in this in different ways. It's just part of being human. Furthermore, for those who are, of us who are Christians, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to live out our faith in our culture. Ultimately, our faith is personal, but it's not private. So Jesus warns us against political complacency. But I think Jesus also warns us against political supremacy. He warns us against thinking that politics is ultimate. Now, here's the subtle implication of what Jesus is saying. Remember, he says, give me a coin. Whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. (laughs) And I think implied in Jesus's next statement is this, and whose image is on your life? And of course, the answer is God. Now, Jesus isn't saying divide your life. You know, there's the public political side, kind of the secular side, and then there's the, the spiritual side. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this, look, you've been created in God's image. You've been created to be in relationship with God. And central to Jesus's ministry was the claim that he is now bringing about a new kingdom, a new kingdom of restoration and renewal, the kingdom of God. And when you become a follower of Christ, this is now the focus of your allegiance. This is now foundational to your identity, not your nationality, not your political party, not your political philosophy. This is now foundational. And I think we need to hear this because the truth is for some people, I think particularly now in our culture, politics is now ultimate. Last year, uh, an author by the name of David Zoll published a book called Seculosity. And it's a book of cultural analysis. And in the book, he notes that for some people, politics is now their new religion. And you know what? I think that can be true for us as well. If we're not careful, politics can really assume a position of supremacy in our lives that it's not designed to assume. In fact, here's a helpful diagnostic question. Just wrestle with this a little bit. With whom do I feel the greatest connection? People who agree with my politics but don't share my faith or people who share my faith but don't agree with my politics? And can I suggest to you that if you feel like, you know, ultimately the people I resonate with most now are just people who share my politics, even if they think differently about faith, 
Can I suggest to you that, that maybe you need to rethink your identity and reevaluate your priorities? Because here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. I think he's saying, you know what? We come under the authority of government, but our ultimate allegiance is to God. We come under the authority of government, but our ultimate allegiance is to God. Now, that's a big idea, and I think for many of us, you would say, well, of course, I, I get that, but what about how we vote, and what about how we engage politics, and what about how we relate to one another? Well, let's, let's now break this down a little bit and, and talk about what it means to put this into practice. And I just I want to give you several big ideas about putting this into practice. First of all, I think we need to do this. We need to pursue biblical wisdom. Now, on the one hand, by this I mean we need to think through how the Bible addresses different kind of social, political topics. And again, I would recommend that that NAE booklet to you. You can find the link in the sermon notes because that does a good job of working through different political issues. But more broadly, I think in terms of pursuing biblical wisdom, we need to allow the biblical storyline, God's story, to shape how we think. And to show you what I mean, um, let's just think about the major movements in the biblical storyline. First of all, we come to creation in the opening chapters of, of Genesis. And I think important elements of the creation story include these. In the creation story, we, we see the, the human, the reality of human dignity and value. We see the sanctity of life. Really, from the womb to the tomb, we are, we are confronted with the reality that we are created in God's image. And this is a central theme of the Bible, the fact that we're created with dignity and value. But I think not only do we see that humans are created with dignity and value, we also understand in the creation story that humans have a contribution to make. And, and so I think in the creation account, we see the value of, of opportunity and responsibility. In the mandates given to the humans in the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, there's the expectation that they are to create culture, that they, they, they're, they're to have opportunities, but also they're to have responsibility. So that's part of the vision of humanity in Genesis. Furthermore, in the creation account, I actually think we see the freedom of conscience and the freedom of religion. Interestingly, in Western history, the first author to discuss the freedom of religion was a Christian by the name of Tertullian. And he roots the idea of religious freedom in the creation narrative and the fact that we've been created in the image of God. So we see this understanding of humanity. And I think furthermore, we see see the value of family and the expectation of community there to be fruitful and multiply. And so in in this creation account, ultimately we see a vision of of what you might call shalom, of harmony, of connectedness, the, the value, the dignity of humans and work, the interrelationship of people in terms of family and the expectation of community. So these are important themes that should shape our political thinking uh, from the creation narrative. But then we get to the next move in the biblical narrative, and that is, that's the fall. And in the fall, we see the pervasiveness and brokenness of, of sin. We see the reality that sin affects all people. It also affects institutions and organizations and governments. Nothing in society is untouched by it. And, and I think we need to be aware of this as we think politically, as we think about government, just the reality that sin is always going to be at work. And even as we think about the reality of sin, 
that helps us, I think, understand the need for government. And in, in the biblical storyline, a central responsibility of government entails working for justice. Now, the truth is this. You and I, we could spend hours debating the nature of justice and what it looks like, but um, I think a simple definition, maybe a place to start in understanding justice in the Bible is this. Justice involves giving people what they are due as those created in God's image. And biblically, justice involves both punishment as well as protection. It involves punishment of evil as well as protection for all, particularly those who are vulnerable and marginalized. So, right, we see this vision of what humanity can be, and then we see the fall, the reality of the sin, and the need for government, particularly the need for justice in society. And then arguably the next major movement in in Scripture is, is the plan of redemption. And we come to the ministry of Christ, and, and particularly through Christ's teaching and work, we, we start to understand that the focus of God's work through his plan is now his church. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God. God's plan is now at work through him. And this plan of restoration and renewal and forgiveness is now going to be at work through his church. That is the focus of his work, not governments, not nationalities, not political authorities. And for us as believers in Christ, this means we, we ultimately, we have dual citizenship. We have citizenship in this country, and we have a role to play. And with that role comes responsibility to really engage life culturally, socially, and politically. But our ultimate identity as Christians is as citizens of God's kingdom. And we need to understand that ultimately it is through his church that God is doing his work. And it is through his church that this plan of renewal and transformation is ultimately taking place. And as his church, as we live out this dual citizenship, I think this also means that we are to be a counterculture for the common good, to borrow wording from author Tim Keller. We are to live out our commitment to Christ as people who are salt and light. We're to be people who love our neighbors, people who engage political issues, And we do so thinking about the good of others, thinking about our commitment to love our neighbor as Jesus has commanded. So we see the reality of the fall. We see, I mean, of creation and then the fall and then restoration and redemption. And finally, there's there's the truth that God will be faithful in restoring what he has started for Christ to come again. And, And because of this, we are to be people of hope not people of fear, because we know God is going to finish what he has started. So really in engaging political issues, cultural issues, I think we need to understand this biblical vision, this biblical storyline. We need to understand the vision of humanity, the dignity of humanity, the reality that humans are intended to make a contribution. Furthermore, we need to realize the reality of the fall and the necessity of government and the pervasiveness of sin and the the need for justice. Finally, as, as Christ followers, we need to understand our dual citizenship and engage in culture and politics as a citizen, but recognize that our ultimate identity is found in Christ. And that's where God's plan of restoration and renewal is now underway. And as we engage that dual citizenship, as we live out our identity as followers of Christ, we're to do so with hope because we know Christ is going to finish what he has started.
Now, here's, here's the truth. That's just a quick overview of the biblical storyline. And the truth is, this, this storyline doesn't necessarily tell you how to vote or how to deal with each political public issue. But I think it does give us a framework for thinking through those kinds of issues and those kinds of questions. And, and it, for me, as I think about the kind of the biblical storyline and try to think through political issues, cultural issues, in, in using this framework, I, I often come to two questions, which are often political questions. And these questions are these. As I think about political issues, I, I ask, does this foster human flourishing, right? In the biblical storyline, there's this vision of what humanity can be, a vision of how humanity has been created. And so in thinking about certain public policies or candidate positions, um, does this policy reflect God's vision for humanity, the dignity, the value of humanity, the expectation that we're to have opportunities and responsibility? How well does this policy align with God's biblical vision of humanity and the biblical vision of human flourishing? I think another question that helps in evaluating political positions and how to engage public policy is, well, does this further the cause of justice? Is this a policy that, that works for justice, or is it going to create more brokenness? So given that framework of, of kind of the biblical storyline of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, asking these two questions, it can be helpful in sorting out political issues. For instance, as our sons have gotten older, we've had more political conversations. And the truth is, we're at different places at times politically. We don't look at things the same way. For instance, one of our recurring conversations has been about the issue of poverty. And at times, we've, we've argued about the best way to respond and what should public policy look like. And, and often, those conversations really come back to these questions. What, what's the best way to foster human flourishing? in dealing with these kinds of situations and the reality of poverty in certain parts of our community? And, and how, do we, how do we further the cause of justice? And so this framework has really provided um, an opportunity for us to have good conversations and try and, and think through uh, these issues carefully. Once again, this framework and pursuing biblical wisdom isn't always going to tell you how to vote in each particular situation but it provides a guide to working through political issues biblically. So we need to pursue biblical wisdom. Another, another kind of application point that I would bring to you is this. We need to recognize that Christianity is political, but not partisan. It is, is political, but not partisan. Here's what I mean by that. Remember when we looked at the story of Jesus the question was really, okay, Jesus, which side of the political divide are you on? But the truth was, Jesus didn't fit neatly into either side. He didn't fit into their categories. You even saw this in the calling of the disciples, right? I mean, it's fascinating. Have you thought about this? Jesus calls his disciples, and one turns out to be a zealot, and one turns out to be a tax collector. The, these two guys represented the exact opposite ends of the political divide in ancient Israel, right? A zealot, those were the people all about overthrowing Rome and avoiding the Roman system. The tax collectors, they were part of the system. You couldn't get any farther politically from one another than these two guys. 
I mean, imagine a team photo of Jesus and his disciples, and one is wearing a MAGA hat, and one is wearing a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. Yet, yet Jesus calls these people, and he, he calls them to be his disciples. They, they didn't fit. His group of, of, of followers didn't fit neatly into any political tribe. I think you see this in early church history as well. If you look closely at the early centuries of church history, among other things, you will see people who stood strongly against abortion and infanticide. They also supported a biblical sexual ethic, which was radical in that day. And you, you might think of these as more conservative values. But even as they supported those values, the early church was also committed to being multi-ethnic and looking out for the poor and the marginalized. And we might think of those, well, those seem to be values that are more liberal-leaning. It it just didn't fit. The early church didn't fit neatly into nice, closed political categories. I think it's true then and it's true now. So if you think you have to have an R or a D behind your name to be a Christian, I think you're confusing your political party with the kingdom of God. Likewise, um, we need to recognize and realize that in pursuing biblical wisdom, And in moving from principles to public policy, we do this in a fallen world. And because we do it in a fallen world, that is because we move from principles to policy in a fallen world, it can involve compromise, it can involve political trade-offs. And the truth is, Christians will disagree on how this should be done. Christians will disagree, even people committed to the Bible will disagree on how to move from principles to policy, even on a principle as foundational as the sanctity of life, which we saw as grounded in creation, you will find committed Christians who differ on how best to live this out. So hear this clearly. Do not presume that your brother or sister in Christ is an unfaithful Christian just because they engage politics differently than you do. We need to recognize that Christianity is political, It moves us into the public sphere, but it is not partisan. And this means, among other things, we've got to learn to engage each other well, even when we disagree. Now, that brings me to the next application point. Now, (laughs) you may roll your eyes when I say this, but hear me out. And that application point is this. One of the most political things we can do is to be active in church. (laughs) You're going, oh my goodness, I can't believe he said that. But here's why I say this. As we've already seen, the biblical vision is that our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And I think our citizenship in God's kingdom, our participation in God's church is to shape our participation and our citizenship in the broader world. That is, our citizenship in God's kingdom is to shape how we approach our citizenship in our home country. Among other things, this means that that church, I think, is to be a place where we learn to build relationships. Church is to be a place where we learn to interact, where we learn to disagree and work through those disagreements. Now, frankly, we don't always do that well. At times, we fail miserably, but that's the biblical vision of the church. The church is to be the place where we engage one another and really learn how to act politically in the broader world. 
to show you just what this can look like, I, I sat down with two friends this week who think very differently politically, yet are good friends. So watch this. Today, as we talk about politics, I'm joined by uh, two friends, John Webster, Steve Pearl. And uh, maybe the best way to introduce you two is this. First of all, you're both committed to Christ. Secondly, you're both committed to Scripture and following the principles of Scripture. You're also good friends, but where you differ is in how you think about politics. You two can look at political issues very differently, and I would venture to say your ballots are going to look differently this, this year. And so with that in mind, I've got just two questions for you guys. First of all, how have you made this work? How have you, how have you maintained your relationship, even given these kinds of differences? It's even unspoken between us uh, because we've never, like, said, hey, we're going to keep this, uh, you know, as a separate part. But um, first, you know, relationship is number one. I would never give up a relationship for a vote or anything. Uh, and and Steve is a lovable guy, but uh, seriously though, it is um, really just respecting the other person enough to at least listen to what they say. And and I can't say that I'm not trying to persuade because I am, but I'm always willing to listen to the other side and just hear what he says. And I would I would have to go along with that, and and I would amplify it in saying that it's unwritten ground rules. Okay. There are certain unwritten ground rules in every relationship. We're not often conscious of them, but I think in John's and my case, there are a couple that are pretty readily there, and that is brothers in Christ, name-calling, no. Personal attacks, no. It has to be about you're, 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 you're having a conversation. It may get hot. It may get heated, but you have to try to say, at the end of the day, we are still brothers in Christ. We are still committed to each other as people. As, as people that God loves and who Jesus tells us we are to love each other. Uh, love, love one another and love, love others as you would want them to love you. And we're, that's kind of how we do it. I would also say, to, to John's other point, he has brought stuff to the table in terms of facts and details that I never looked at from different sources. But he's not putting up memes. He's not putting up... He's putting up facts and figures, and he's bringing in these sources I might not have considered, and it makes me stop and think. There have been times when we've gotten into the middle of something, and I'm like, okay, point made, you win. (laughs) So obviously, uh, one of the keys here is, is understanding what you have in common, what we share as believers in Christ. Also, being for the other person and being actually willing to listen rather than simply trying to win an argument. You've already started to answer this question, but let, let me go ahead and put it on the table uh, secondly. And that question is this. So, so in this relationship and in these conversations, what have you learned from one another? Ah, empathy. The thing that I have appreciated, uh, and patience, the thing that I have appreciated from John, <laughs> I know this is going to surprise him, is that, we, that he has the patience of Job. When we're going back and forth, he never gets, it, it's just modulated, it's cool, it's, and, and he listens, and we do go back and forth, but I never feel like I'm not being heard. And, and the other thing is, we do come, ironically, we do come down a lot of times at the same place, but from very different roots. Okay. What would you add? 
I would say everything he said is is accurate. And and the one thing that I think would be encouraging to others to go the path that Steve and I go is is the deeper we get in an argument about something and and the more intense that argument gets, sometimes it cracks open a personal story. And I have learned more about Steve's testimony in the heat of a of a really intense debate about a topic and then all of a sudden one of us says well this happened to me in life and this is why I think this way and then you're like wow like I just learned a whole new thing about this person that I didn't know before and it wouldn't have happened without the friction of the debate so really if we learn to engage each other well we should actually be hearing more of another person's story and where they're coming from well, guys, I want, I want to thank you for sharing a little bit of your story, and uh, it's great to actually see you in person since we've yeah. been separated during COVID. So thanks again, guys. I want to thank those two guys for sharing their story with us, and there were some great suggestions there on how we can engage each other well, even when we disagree, how we can fight for unity of the church, even when we are engaging political issues differently. I'll just remind you of a couple of things they said. First, I think the the value of remembering what we have in common. Likewise, the the importance of avoiding name-calling. And then I thought this was really important. We need to listen to learn, right? We need to listen to really learn from one another, not just to try and win an argument. So what, what if instead of looking at someone and saying, I don't see how you can believe that and still be a Christian. What if instead of saying that, we looked at someone and said, would you tell me how you got there? Tell me a little bit of your story that's shaping how you are engaging this political issue. That's part of what we need to learn in being the church. So we talked about pursuing wisdom. We've, we've talked about recognizing that uh, Christianity is political, but it's not partisan. We talked about the importance of being in church as a place where we really learn to engage one another well. And that leads to one more thing that I want to say, and that is this. We need to be people of hope. We need to be people of hope. Now, look, I realize that at this point, some of you are really frustrated with me. Some of you are thinking, George, you should have just told people how to vote. You are not taking this election seriously. Now, hear me clearly on this. I believe this election is important. But I also believe it's not ultimate. I believe we need to vote. And if you haven't voted already, I want to encourage you to do so. But I also think we must recognize that our hope is grounded in something much deeper than the outcome of this election. In fact, I I want to ask you just right now to examine your heart for a moment as you're thinking about this, this election. And just wrestle with this question. Wrestle with this question right now is, is my emotional well-being hinging on the outcome of this election? I think for some of us, we'd have to say it is. And if that is the case, I want, you to hear, I want you to hear me as your pastor. I want you to hear my heart in this. If, if, if the truth is, all that is about you is hinging on the outcome of this election, would you just hear the words of Jesus for a moment? At a pivotal season in his ministry, the turning point of his ministry, Jesus took his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel. 
It was a rather strange place to take them because, you see, Caesarea Philippi was a place that really was the display of Roman power. It was a a region filled with temples to Roman gods. It was a place that confronted you head-on with the power, the political might of the Roman Empire. And Jesus takes his disciples to this region, and it is in this region that he makes the audacious claim, by the way, I'm going to build my church, and nothing is going to stand against it. Not the Roman Empire, not any election, not any political party, not the gates of hell itself. Nothing will stand against what I'm going to do. Now, frankly, at the time, it felt like a ludicrous claim. Here's this nomadic teacher with only a handful of disciples, and he's in this region that exemplifies the power of Rome, and he's saying nothing is going to stand against him. Yet centuries later, his his words have proven true. The Roman Empire is now just a memory in history books, but yet here we are, his church still standing. I had to smile this week because a group of Israeli archaeologists are doing additional excavation in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And this week, this week, they announced a new discovery. They discovered something that had been built on the ruins of a Roman temple in that region. (laughs) And you know what they discovered? They discovered this. You know what you're looking at? This is a 5th century church. On the ruins of that Roman temple, a church was built. Once again, proving Jesus' words to be true. His church is the focus of his work, and the work that he has started, he will be faithful to complete. So let's be people of hope. Let's be people who, because of our hope, engage the political process well. Let's recognize that we have a role to play. Let's vote, let's pray, let's participate. But let's also be people of hope in recognizing that we are called to be the church. And you know what our country needs from us right now? Our country needs for us to be the church. It needs for us to be people who are united, who are engaging one another well, who are remembering what we have in common, even when we disagree. It needs us to live out our faith. It needs to, us to live out our commitment to building bridges, bridges and loving our neighbors. It needs us to be salt and light. So let's be the church. Let's be the church. And I think this is so important because I'm convinced of this. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who wins on Tuesday if the church loses. So let's be the church. Let's engage our political responsibilities well, but let's do it as God's church. Would you pray with me? So gracious God, we now, we come into this election season and we're, we're preparing to vote if we haven't voted already. And Father, even now we pray for those people who are going to be elected this week. We pray that they would be open to this biblical view of humanity and all that that entails. And the importance of governments exercising justice, both in terms of punishment as well as protection. We pray for them, whoever they may be. And Father, we also pray, though, that in the midst of engaging this political season, that we can be the church, that we can be people learning what it means to interact with one another, because this is where it all starts. This is where you are at work. 
And this is what our country needs. So, Father, this week, may your church truly be your church. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us this morning and and remind you, if you haven't voted, to vote already. But I pray that as we go through this week, regardless of the outcome, that we will be people empowered, encouraged by the hope of the gospel who engage the political process as God's church.